This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnytime.com. ChazakMarriage.org, ChazakMarriage.org, or if you go to Chazak, to the homepage, you'll see a banner over there, you can register, and it's, um, everything is there. And again, it's August 18th at 8 p.m. It's, uh, it really, I think it's well worth your time, and I hope it, uh, it'll be a very, very effective and very important uh, event. It was shortly after the destruction of the base of Mikdash and the most beautiful city that ever existed, Yerushalayim, was in ruins. Block after block of rubble, destroyed houses, destroyed buildings, shuls, mikvos. And the Gemara tells us that Rabbi Yossi was walking amongst the ruins and for some reason he went into a churva, into a rubble, into a ruin of a house to Davin. And when he was in there, Elio Novi waited for him at the Pesach, and Rabbi Yossi recognized this as Elio Malach, and he said, Shalom Aleichem Rabbi Umori. And Elio said to him, tell me my son, what did you hear inside that rune? And Rabbi Yossi said, I heard the sound of a almost a, a dove cooing and crying on and on. Says, Leo, that was a Kaddish Baruch Hu, that was Hashem. And you should know that three times a day, three times a day he says, woe to the father who had to exile his sons. Woe to the sons who had to be exiled. And more than that, when the Bnei Yisrael come into shul, and they answer Kaddish, they say, Hashem, if it could be, nods his head and says, Woe to the king, how they used to give him such praise in his house. Woe to the father who had to exile his sons. Woe to the sons who are exiled. And this concept we're very familiar with. Seven times a day we answer Kaddish. And the concept being that the world we live in is not complete. But it's not that it's imperfect, it's a world functioning at a fragment, at a small fraction of what it should be. And we daven again and again, Hashem, please bring back your monarchy, show yourself again to be the king, change the course of existence, make the world as it's supposed to be. And this concept that the world that we're in now is not the way that it's supposed to be is central is basic to our religion. And I'd like to ask a very obvious question. What's lacking? We have it better now than probably any generation ever in history. Financially, there's never been this much wealth, this much accessible opulence. And it's not just materially. We've never had these many yeshivas. We've never had these many beshakos. We've never had these many chesed organizations. You name it, the Jewish nation is flourishing as it never did before. So what's lacking? What do we constantly say, Hashem, please bring back the days. Please, Hashem, show your melucha. Please show your monarchy. What's lacking? And that question is asked from a perspective of misunderstanding. And if you want to understand that perspective, let me give you a muscle. Imagine a boy who celebrated his fifth birthday 
in Auschwitz. He had the misfortune of growing up in Poland, being born in 1936, and when his village was taken away to the concentration camps, he was taken with them, and that's where he grew up. And he celebrates his fifth birthday in Auschwitz. To him, this is normal. It's all that he's ever experienced. For him, it's normal to scrounge for the one slice of bread a day. For him, it's normal to watch men being beaten to death. For him, it's normal to sleep on a bunk without a blanket, freezing, barely alive. And if you tell this five-year-old boy there's a different reality, little children are supposed to be playing, well-fed, happy, he wouldn't know how to deal with what you're referring to. He wouldn't have the vocabulary. He wouldn't have an understanding because his entire frame of reference, everything he's ever experienced, has been in the camps, and that's normal to him. And in a very real sense, I believe that's us. You see... We were born into captivity. Our parents were born in captivity. Our grandparents. And for 2,000 years, we've been living in this strange state. An unnatural, imperfect, very, very diminutive state. But the problem is we don't feel it. It's normal. It's regular. It's all I've ever seen. It's all I've ever lived with. It's all I've ever experienced. What do you mean? And I'd like to spend a little time seeing if we can understand what life is supposed to be like and unfortunately what life is like. And to do that, let me share with you one observation. I live in Muncie and a lot of the backyards are open and people walk through my backyard to a number of shuls. And Shabbos is an open area and I'm very happy to let anyone walk through. It's a nice cut through. It saves them a lot of walk. And many people will walk through my backyard on Shabbos to get to their shul. That's fine. I have one quirk. If I'm walking the other way, and you're walking across my backyard, and I say good Shabbos to you, I ask that you please acknowledge my existence. If I say good Shabbos to you on the street, and you ignore me, I think you're rude, maybe you don't, but this is my backyard. I pay the taxes, I mow the lawn. If I say good Shabbos to you in my backyard, please acknowledge my existence. I don't think it's such a strange request. One of the first things that a Jew should have is a sense of anger within him. We live in a world that's so complex, so marvelous, and we know that Hashem created it all. From absence of anything, Hashem said, Vayihi, and a hundred billion galaxies, each containing a hundred billion stars, came into existence. And we know that everything was done with extraordinary forethought, extreme care. And to hear people say the words, huh, the lucky roll of the cosmic dice. God, I don't believe in God. There is no God, whatever. It should fill you with anger. That's my creator, the creator of the heavens and the earth, who did all of this for your good, for our good, who wants a share of his good, and you have the audacity to walk in his backyard and deny his existence. And one of the first things that we as Jews should feel instinctively, intuitively, is a tremendous sense of anger, the chutzpah, the audacity to deny the fact that Hashem is a creator. But unfortunately, we don't feel that. We don't feel that because Hashem isn't present in our life. It's not so factual that it's obvious. It's not right there. But there's a lot more to what's lacking 
and what should be. It was Shabbos, <coughs> Shabbos Shudas, and my daughter asked me, Abba, how did that dish taste? And I said to her, I, I'm sorry, I wasn't paying attention. And it's true, I didn't notice. I wasn't paying attention. <clears throat> Do you know how much care and forethought Hashem put into the flavors, aromas, and textures of the food that you eat? Do you know how much time Hashem put in so that the flavor should be delicious? Now, I don't know if you know, but I've spent years, years, years focusing on this concept. There's the orange schmooze that I've said for 15 years. And I look for a new audience to say it again. Why? Because when I say that schmooze for the next week, I eat an orange differently. I describe an oranges. You peel the segments and you see the juice sacs. Why does Hashem design the orange that way? So that when you burst... When you bite into it, you get the burst of flavor. It's not enough that the apple was crispy. It's not enough the orange was citrusy, tangy. Hashem wanted to enhance your experience, so He put the juice sack so you could feel that burst of flavor. Now that's a wonderful concept. And I say that schmooze again and again, because for one week after, I actually taste the food that I eat. But what about the rest of the time? What about the rest of the time? <clears throat> if you think about how much time you actually pay attention to the foods that you eat, the experiences that you're engaged in. How many times have you looked at an ocean and say, that's magnificently beautiful? Have you looked at a f- sunrise, a sunset, and say, that's astonishing? The problem is, we're distracted. We're spaced out. But it's not the way it's supposed to be. Hashem wants us to enjoy our stay on this planet. It's not the reason for creation. And that Hashem made so many things in this world. By the way, the bee is colorblind. The bee is not attracted to the color of the flower. The bee is attracted by the smell. The beautiful <clears throat> orchids, the lilies, the beautiful purples and yellows and pinks were created for one reason, so that you should look at a flower and say, that's astonishingly beautiful. And Hashem made it that way for you to enjoy. And a human being is supposed to be incredibly happy. This experience called being alive is supposed to be, wow, the sights, the aromas, the textures. To listen to music, it's supposed to move you, and you're supposed to be in a different place. But we don't feel it. We don't taste our food, we don't see the sights, we don't experience the moment, we are distracted. But if you'd like to understand another very serious element of what it means to be in exile, what it means that Hashem's presence isn't feel, felt, I'll make it very clear. When I was a boy growing up, there were things people called survivors. A survivor was a man or a woman with numbers tattooed on his or her arm. That was a survivor. I've met many, many survivors lately who are not in their 80s. They're in their teens. And they call themselves survivors, and they are survivors of trauma and parental abuse, of great suffering. And the strange part is that I know the family, and the parents are kindly. And I understand what went on, and it wasn't abuse. Yet the child suffered dramatically. And you don't have to look too far to see that there's tremendous, tremendous suffering in our community And I don't want to make light of it because it really is suffering. Because people are so fragile. They're so unwholesome that if you look at them cross-eyed once, you shatter their essence. 
And if a parent one time looks at a child in the wrong way, it's abuse. And the problem is the kids really suffer. And when you begin to speak to people and you see the pain and you see the suffering, you realize that this is not supposed to be that way. And ladies and gentlemen, I'm not 100 years old, but when I was a boy growing up, that wasn't the reality. The reality was that people grew up wholesome, happy. Whatever they did, they did. But there was a robustness to the personality. You were able to deal with life. People today are so fragile, and it's frightening to watch teenagers. I told my daughters, if you want to earn a living today, go into the mental health field. Go into the mental health field because I guarantee no matter what area of it, your, your door will they'll be breaking down your door. I didn't appreciate that that advice meant that they'd be giving mental health counseling to their friends. You're still in high school. And if you'd like to understand why this is, I'd like to give you a muscle, a parable that defines why life is that way and why people are suffering to that extent. I want you to imagine a man, it's 1933 in Poland, and he's a very wealthy industrialist, and he reads Mein Kampf, and he understands that Hitler was just elected Reich Chancellor, and he sees the handwriting on the wall. And he gathers together the people of his town and says, Rabusai, this is the end. It's just a question of time. We have to move. We have to do something. We have to take charge. No one listens to him. On and on he speaks. On and on. No one, they ignore him left, right, and center. He says, that's it. I'm not sitting back. He goes into the woods and he creates an underground bunker. He's a very wealthy fellow. And he builds an intricate bunker with rooms and rooms, a palace. Not a detail is missed. Everything is beautiful. Everything is perfect, ready. And again, he tells people it's coming, and they ignore him. Again, he tells, and they ignore him. He forgets about the bunker. And it's six years later, it's 1939. The Nazis invade his town. And he calls out, people, come with me. Come. No one comes. They still ignore him. So he realizes they're not going to listen. He grabs the kids. At least they're too young to be stupid. He grabs 300 kids one by one, puts them in the bunker. And then he goes back for another kid, and he's taken. And the kids are left in this beautiful mansion underground. Everything is there, storehouses full of food, playrooms, entire rooms and rooms, everything is ready. There's only one problem. There's a circuit breaker in the basement that has to be turned on. But the kids don't know what a circuit breaker is, and therefore there's no electricity. And they're underground, and it's dark, and it's pitch black. And the kids are trying to navigate this pitch blackness. One falls into another, one trips on on a step one trip before you know it they're tripping and falling back and forth finally one kid says this is stupid I'm not walking anymore he starts crawling all the rest of the kids start crawling and they start adopting behaviors of very very unhealthy behaviors that which kids will do in total darkness and that's how they live their lives their legs become maimed they never learn to walk properly and they become vastly vastly different human beings You'd like to understand our generation, I think that's exactly the muscle. And there are so many people who adopt self-destructive behaviors, self-destructive habits, things that serve us no good, no benefit, but what could I do? I started doing it, I didn't realize, and it becomes a part of me. And if you'd like to see this, all you have to do is look around at your friends. 
Don't you understand? Hashem is the ultimate benefit, benefiter. Hashem wants us to benefit from this world. Hashem created the entire world to give to us. And everything that Hashem created was for our good. He, the world is created for the world to come, but even this world is supposed to be phenomenally pleasurable. And Hashem gave us the mitzvahs, and it's not just the mitzvahs will allow us to gain our world to come, you'll have a much better time in this world. Your world to come here will be much more enjoyable. If you'd like to live the ultimately pleasurable life, the Torah is exactly the guidebook. Why? Because your Creator is generous and wants you to enjoy this world. Follow these principles, you have a good world to come, you'll have a good life here as well. And how many people ignore it on a regular basis, adopt behaviors and attitudes and habits that are so self-destructive, so damaging, and they end up suffering acutely. So if you want to know what's wrong with the world, what we're lacking, number one, for some strange reason, we can't enjoy anything. There's never been greater wealth than there is today. And I love going to any audience, and I do it regularly. And I ask them that magic question. I ask them, answer me honestly, don't bluff, answer the question, first thing that comes to your mind. The question is, are you rich? Are you rich? But I don't mean in meaning and relation, I mean rich, wealthy, financially. Are you materially rich? And invariably, the answer is no. No. And it doesn't matter what the group is. And it doesn't matter what the socioeconomic level. It doesn't matter what, it doesn't matter how poor or how rich, the answer is no. And isn't that strange? And yet, if you were to take a person living 200 years ago and ask them to look at our life, they would be astounded by our wealth. My house outshines the house of Lord Rothschild. Lord Rothschild, the financier of Europe in the 17th century, the starter of the Rothschild dynasty, the wealthiest man alive then. My house is larger. My house is more opulent. I also happen to have indoor plumbing, as well as electricity, air conditioning, and heating that he didn't have. But I, a regular citizen living today, enjoy a lifestyle that kings of yesteryear couldn't enjoy. And again, if you were to take a person living 200 years ago, bring them into our world, they'd be astounded by your, you're so wealthy, you're so rich. Here's the question. Why don't you enjoy it? Why don't you realize it? Why don't you feel it? And the answer is for the same reason that we don't enjoy sights, we don't enjoy flavors, we don't enjoy being alive. And if you'd like to understand why so many people are suffering, it's because when Hashem destroyed the base of Mikdash, Hashem left. Hashem didn't leave because everything is kept in existence by Hashem, and if Hashem would ever leave, it would cease to exist. But nevertheless, the presence of Hashem was totally, totally darkened, and as if it could be, the lights were shut off. And we're living in the dark. And we adopt many, many habits, many behaviors, many thought processes in this darkness, and we think it's for our good, and we think it's for our best, and it ends up damaging us, ends up hurting us, ends up putting us in places we really, really don't wish to be. But there's one more step. In the United States of America, annually, there are tens of millions of reported cases of depression. Now, depression is not, oh, I'm a little down, I lost, uh, lost my job. The clinical depression means you're not getting out of bed. You're so depressed, you're not getting out of bed. 
tens of millions of cases of reported depression in this country annually every year. Now, here's the strange part about it. Only 16% have an attributable cause. An attributable cause means a reason why you should be depressed. If a woman was married for 45 years and her husband died, that's a trauma. There's a very real reason why we'd expect it to be going through a very, very dark period of life, and we might understand why she'd be depressed. That's an attributable cause. But of the tens of millions of cases, but 16% have an attributable cause. Viktor Frankl was a Viennese psychiatrist, and Viktor Frankl made an interesting discovery. Not in the field of psychiatric medicine, he made a discovery when the Nazis put him on a train bound for Auschwitz, he discovered that he was a Jew. And he survived. And after the war, he wrote a book. The book is called Man in Search of Meaning. And the book has two parts to it. The first part of the book is his description of what life was like in the concentration camps. And he describes that he tried to be dispassionate. He tried to play psychiatrist, to step away and just analyze what was going on. And it's a harrowing read. The second part of the book is where he describes his life after the war. He went to the displaced persons camp, then he landed on these shores. He opened his practice in the Upper East Side, and in no time at all his practice was filled. He had been a world-famous psychiatrist. No sooner did he put out word than his practice was filled. But he says the patients that he was now seeing were showing profiles that he had never come across before, things that he didn't understand, things he couldn't relate to. In decades of practice, he had never seen this. He says during the intake interview, I say to a man, how could I help you? Well, Doc, I'm depressed. Oh, I'm sorry to hear that. Is it your marriage? No. Are your kids? No. Your job? No. So why are you depressed? I don't know, Doc. That's why I'm here. A middle-aged woman come in and you say, ma'am, what could I do for you? No, 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 Doc, I'm depressed. Is it your marriage? No. Is it, is it your career? No. Your kids? No. Your bridge game? No. Why are you depressed? I don't know, Doc. That's why I'm here. Patient after patient would come in without an attributable, without a reason. And his position, from a secular vantage point, he says these people were suffering from a lack of meaning in life. Man without purpose, man without meaning, should be depressed, will be depressed. And that was his, again, secular vantage point, his secular viewpoint. My friends, I'd like to share with you, Viktor Frankl got it at least 50% right. At least 50% right. And let me explain to you what I mean. For many years, I misunderstood a phrase. Did you ever hear the phrase, Shlemus? Hashem created us, and our job is to be shalim, to be, to be I thought they meant perfect. Why did Hashem give us the mitzvahs? Because we're supposed to perfect ourselves. We're supposed to grow and accomplish. And what we're seeking is Shlemus. Shlemus, I thought, meant perfection. You know what Shlemus means? If you read the Derech Hashem and you read the other works of Ramchal, Shlemus does not mean perfection. Shlemus means completion. Hashem created the human being with many things lacking. Hashem created us with needs. We need to breathe. We need to eat. We need companionship. But one of the most basic needs in the human is a need to cling to Hashem. Shlemus is completion. 
when you cling to Hashem, when you're close to Hashem, there's a completion, you are a complete person. And why did Hashem create us that way? Because Hashem is the ultimate giver. And all that Hashem wants is to share of His good with us. Hashem created an entire world for one reason, to share of His good, but He wants to allow us to earn it. And to earn it, that means we work, we perfect ourselves, so that we become closer and closer, so that we reach the ultimate goal called Dvekas, being clinging to Hashem, and that's completion. I don't have to spell this out very clearly, but the world we live in today has lost its moral compass. It's off its rocker. When I was a kid growing up in the United States of America, a man married a woman, moved to the suburbs, put a white picket fence around his house, had 1.5 kids and a dog, and that was life. Those were the happy days. That is not the United States of America today. And I'm not going to put you through all of the war stories, but I get the phone calls on a regular basis, and that's from within the Jewish community. And when you talk about outside the Jewish community, the incredible thickness, utter stupidity, utter destruction of humanity is hard to describe. And let me make it very clear. When I was a boy growing up, if you hated a person, I got it. You punched them, you hit them, you beat them up. I get it. I even understand you could hate someone so much that you want to kill them, and maybe even you kill them. I get it. I don't condone it. I understand it. What I don't understand is why you walk into a Walmart with a fully loaded automatic weapon and mow down indiscriminately some of the 3,000 people there. And I said to my wife, this is insanity. My wife said, it's not insanity, it's ideology. I said, that is insane. If I have an ideology and based on an ideology, I hate you, okay, I kill you, right or wrong, it makes sense. But if I have an ideology that X, Y, and Z, and if I go kill people of no connection, no relation to that issue, how do you explain that? How do you explain going into a school and just randomly shooting anybody you can? And it happens all the time. And it's regular. Maybe we hear about it too much because the news plays it up. But the bottom line is it's abnormal. It's insane. It doesn't make sense. And when you read about society, and I don't even mean the alphabet soup and all the nonsense, I'm talking about things that even the strangest human beings alive have to admit doesn't make sense. You're looking at a world out of control. And if you'd like to understand the very, very basic reason behind it, it's quite simple. There is no God. You see, thank God we're free of that vestige of old, the thing called the Creator. We're free, and we now have a scientific model the Big Bang, poof, everything came into existence on its own. It all evolved, and now we're free of God. And now that we're free of God, and we get to watch the human civilization spiral downward, downward, until utter chaos. And do you understand why? <clears throat> because again, exactly as Mr. Sharma described, when Hashem created us, Hashem created us to give to us, and Hashem wants us to cling to Him because that's the ultimate good. The ultimate place of that good is the world to come, but even in this world. And when you do what you're put here to do, there's an inner peace, an inner sense of harmony, there's joy in your heart, there's happiness, and there's completion. But if you run from that voice inside, if you hide from it, you could run and run, but there's an emptiness inside, there's a vacuum, and it surfaces, and you either you do commit suicide, or you're just depressed, or you're just down and whatever, and just everything no longer functions. 
You see, if you'd like to know why we need Mashiach, it's because fundamentally the world isn't functioning as it's supposed to. Would you like to know what the world is supposed to be like? I'll give you a very interesting illustration. The Anshe Knesset Sagdola. They used to daven for three hours. An hour before Shemona Esrei, an hour Shemona Esrei, and then an hour after. Three times a day. And the Nefesh Chaim says, I get it. And before you speak to the Creator of the heavens and earth, it takes a long time to prepare yourself. You have to think about it. You have to dwell on the fact that little me, I'm going to have a conversation with Hashem, the Creator, right there, richer than Bill Gates, more powerful than Donald Trump. I, speaking to God, there's a lot to think about. And I also understand why it took an hour speaking to Hashem. There's a lot to ask for. And if you know that Hashem loves you more than anyone in existence, and Hashem only wants your benefit and your good, and you know that Hashem listens not to every tefillah, because not every request we make is for the best, is for our best, and that Hashem listens, and you know that you could ask for whatever you want, I understand why it takes an hour. But why does it take an hour after? What's the hour after? And explains in Nebuchadnezzar Chaim, don't you understand? When you're speaking to Hashem, and you're right there, it's so difficult to come back to this mundane physical world. It's so hard to separate that it took them an hour to come back down to this world. I don't know if you know what I'm talking about, but I'll make it very clear. Shir hamalos b'shuva shemesh shiva We say that pasuk in benching every Shabbos. It's a song that we're going to sing when, when Hashem returns us from back to Israel. Hayinu kecholmim. We'll recognize then that now we were dreaming. But you know what Yerbiyon Sanayipshit says? He says, you know what that means? When you're asleep, it's like you're dead. Your brain isn't functioning. You're not there. You're not functioning. You open your eyes and suddenly you're awake. And when Mashiach comes, this long, bitter exile ends, and we open our eyes, and suddenly we experience life. I wake up in the morning with joy in my heart. I wake up and experience this world, and I see the beauty, and I see the flowers, and I see the sun, and I'm like, wow, Hashem's presence right here. It's incredible. At that moment, we'll look back on this exile, and we'll look at ourselves like we were sound asleep. And he says these words, we're one-sixtieth alive, death and sleep. Sleep is one-sixtieth of death. That's what it's like. We're now one-sixtieth alive. And that's what he describes our existence now. And all you have to do is just look at your own life and tell me it's not true. We are so incredibly distracted. Even when we shut the iPhone off, and even that rare moment when I look another human being in the eyes, I'm not present. I'm distracted. I'm somewhere else. And if you don't think I'm right, I'll give you a sociological little experiment. Walk down Fifth Avenue, noon, walking against the traffic. You know, like the swarms of people like coming at you. Walk the wrong way, and I challenge you to find me a human being in this posture. Find me a human being of the thousands of people you're going to pass. Find me a human being with a genuine smile on his or her face. Happy to be alive. Wow. Ah. Wow. Why? Opulence. Freedom. You can do whatever you want. You own your own business. You have plenty of money. What is your issue? I'm busy. I got to do it. I got to You're distracted. You're totally, totally spaced out. 
And that's not the way life is supposed to be. And it's not the way life was meant to be. If you like to know what we ask for when we say, Hashem, please, please show you Malucha. Hashem, reveal yourself so that every Jew and every Gentile will see you right there. And it'll be obvious and clear that you are the creator and maintainer of physicality. But everyone will get it. And in that instant, everyone understands why we're here. And everyone understands how every mitzvah helps me and changes me into a better person. Every avera damages me. But it's not just that. With a total clarity of understanding, everything takes on a new color. I suddenly see the beauty of this world and there's joy in my heart. And I suddenly experience food, sights, things. I start davening and I say 16 brachas. Those 16 brachas are supposed to be said with an outpouring of emotion. Hashem, thank you for my ears with which to hear, my eyes with which to see, my arms, my legs. Hashem, you gave me so much. There's a sense of gratitude welling within me. And then you move on to Pesukit Zimra. And Pesukit Zimra, you begin to extol the virtues of Hashem. Look at the world you created. And from the trees to the oceans, and the animals and the birds. And you begin recognizing the greatness of Hashem. And then you get to Baruchu. And then for those of you who actually know what the words mean, what you realize is you're no longer in this world. You've climbed into the upper world, and you're now in the world of the Malachim, and you describe the Malachim. And you see the thousands and thousands and thousands of groups of Malachim, and some get a chance to sing Shirat Hashem once every week, some once a month, some once a year, and some once 500 years. And you understand that they're about to say the words Kadosh, and you, with them you say those words, you sing praise to your Creator, and there's a joy in your heart as you recognize how close you are to Hashem. Does anyone know what I'm talking about? Anyone even remotely know what I'm referring to? And that's before Shimon Esrei. And then you start Shimon Esrei where I am speaking to my Creator right there, speaking to Hashem right here, present. That's what it's supposed to be like. But it's not. And don't get me wrong. I'm not saying you're the problem. And I'm not even saying I'm the problem. The problem is it's a very, very dark, bitter exile. We were born into captivity. We don't understand the darkness. We don't understand how bleak it is. And because we were always, this is like that five-year-old born in Auschwitz. This This is normal to us. It's not normal. Families are supposed to be intact. People are supposed to be happy. And life is supposed to be fulfilling and satisfying, and people are supposed to walk around with a smile on their face. That's how life's supposed to be. And I have one more step that I think you really have to understand. <clears throat> when you sit on the floor, Tisha above, you're supposed to focus on the pain, the pain of your people, the pain of previous generations, and your own pain as well. And you're supposed to feel generation after generation of torture and affliction. And you're supposed to read Jewish history and you're supposed to have a feeling the horrible, horrible things. And then you're supposed to look at your generation and you're supposed to say, okay, granted we're not bleeding physically, but emotionally we're bleeding. You're supposed to feel the pain. And you're supposed to feel your own pain as well. And at that same moment, you're supposed to come to a certain understanding. As much as I feel that pain... It's nothing compared to the way Hashem feels that pain. Because you see, as much as you're concerned for your betterment, as much as you want what's good for you, Hashem wants it even more. As much as you want the best things to happen for you, 
Hashem wanted even more. And as much as you love you, Hashem loves you even more. But really, that's not accurate. The Chavaz Vavaz explains to us, if you take the most loving, kindly person ever in existence, take Avram Avinu, unbridled, flowing love, and take that love and multiply it 10,000, 10,000, 10,000 times, and you don't have an inkling to the love that Hashem has for any one of His creations. And if you understand that any moment that you feel the pain of another Jew, Hashem feels it so much more acutely, so much more powerfully, and you'll forget it. You'll break your fast tonight, and long ago will be gone the pain, but Hashem doesn't forget. And that pain remains. And as much as we suffer in exile, Hashem suffers with us. And I think understanding what's lost requires a major, major jump, because it requires stepping away from everything that we've been exposed to, and everything we've been brought up to with, and maybe you'll say, it's too hard. Rabbi, I've never seen this. I've never experienced it. All you got to do is look at the pain, look at the suffering, and say the words, it's not normal. It's not the way it's supposed to be. And I want to close with one last thought. Kaddish is said in Aramaic. Now that's a strange language. You and I don't speak Aramaic. And Anshay Knesset who wrote Kaddish, Wrote Shmanesrei, they wrote in Hebrew, clearly they write in Hebrew. Why did they write Kaddish in Aramaic? And if you look in the Mephoshim, you look in the Torah, you look in the preacher, they explain why. And do you remember this Gemara? This Gemara says, three times a day, Hashem says, woe, woe to the father who had to exile his son, woe to the sons who are exiled. But when the Jewish nation come into the base Knesset, and they say, Yehei Shmei Rabba Mavarach, you know what those words mean? We ask Hashem, please show your dominion, show your rulership, reveal yourself. When we say those words, Hashem says, woe to the king who used to be praised so in his palace, in the base of Mikdush. Woe to the father who has to exile his sons, woe to the sons who are exiled. And explains the Torah that at that moment, the Shekinah has tremendous, Hashem has tremendous pain. Aramaic is a language that the Malachim are not allowed to know. Chazal wrote Kaddish Aramaic so that the Malachim don't understand what's going on. Why? Because if they were to understand that the Jewish nation are causing that much pain to Hashem, there'd be a kitruk, there'd be a catastrophe. They would complain and rebel. How dare you cause Hashem such pain? Why are you saying those words? Stop it. And the preacher says even more, he says, Bozizim, you fools, what are you doing? You're causing Hashem pain, stop it. And to understand that we are supposed to feel the pain of others. We're supposed to recognize that this life that we're leading now isn't the way Hashem wants it to be. It's not the way it's supposed to be. Can I grow now? Yes. Can I change now? Yes. To a limited extent, but you can. But the ultimate redemption is what we yearn for, what we ask Hashem for, and what we mispala for, to bring Mashiach so instantly everyone gets it, everything changes, it becomes clear. And a big part of that is our own pain that should be driving it. A big part of that should be the pain, the suffering of the Jewish nation. And as much, a big part of that should be the pain of the Shekhinah, knowing that as much as we feel our pain, Hashem feels it even more. As much as we suffer, Hashem is suffering with us. May Hashem grant us that this be the last Tishabov that we spend in exile. Hashem redeem us immediately. You've just experienced another Torah class brought to you by TorahAnytime.com.